Forty days after Christ's glorious resurrection, he bids farewell to his beloved disciples and takes his place before the throne of God. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning as we celebrate the ascension of our dominion Christ. By the inspiration of God, Daniel says this in his vision, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Luke writes to us in the Acts of the Apostles in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 through verse 9. With the same spirit, the apostle writes, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of our God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, 40 days after the victorious and glorious resurrection of the promised Messiah, Jesus assumes his position before the throne room of God to receive dominion, glory, and a kingdom. The result of which was that all people, nations, and languages would one day serve him as Lord and Christ. And this was the promise of total and comprehensive systemic victory over all things. Once Christ received the glory and the honor and the kingdom and the dominion, this began a systemic thrust of victory over all things. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is a most important component of the entire gospel message without which the power of the gospel and the reality of the established crown rights of King Jesus falls flat on its face. This is why it is so important during this time, after 40 days, 
we should focus on the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension of the Lord Christ is therefore a most important component. In other words, without this declaration, without the declaration of the events of the ascension's coronation ceremony, because that's what it was, it was a coronation ceremony before the Ancient of Days, the truth of the legitimate authority of the Lord Christ could not be publicly established. This was a public declaration in the heavens. It begins in the heavens as it was anticipated on the earth. This coronation at the ascension was already anticipated when Jesus rode into the holy city Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. It would actually take place 40 days after his resurrection when his work in behalf of the saints was finished upon the cross. But as we shall see, the triumphal entry, even though that was an anticipation of the coronation of the king, that triumphal entry was not the first public anticipation of the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The actual ascension was his earthly declaration of his coronation as king, whereas the ascension was the heavenly declaration that Christ was Lord and possessor of heaven and earth. You see, he's going to anticipate it. The earthly declaration of the actual coronation was at the triumphal entry, but then the reality, the substance of that coronation would happen in the throne room of God at the heavenly ascension, and that would then declare that the Lord Jesus Christ was not only Lord and King, but possessor of heaven and earth. At that time, he receives the kingdom. He receives everything. In fact, Melchizedek, identifies Jehovah in this way before Abraham in Genesis 14 after the defeat of the kings of Ketelomera by Abram. Notice Genesis 14, 18 and 19. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. God is the owner of all things. And all things consist because of his grace and by his will. Now, once the victory of Christ was established, God the Father gives the Son both heaven and earth as his dominion. Melchizedek is declaring Jehovah as the possessor of heaven and earth. But once the victory of Christ is established, God passes to Christ this scepter where he becomes the possessor of heaven and earth. And we read this in Psalm 2. Notice, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said, Jehovah hath said unto me, Christ, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, and that word is nations, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy Possession. So this, a transference of power, a transference of possession. And once the culmination of the age is completed, and Christ has put down all rule and all authority and power, then he will deliver the kingdom back to the Father, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Speaking of Christ, Paul explains it this way. Now notice what's happening here. God the Father, possessor of heaven and earth, Christ the victor, given 
the possession of heaven and earth to put down all rule and all authority. He has been given the inheritance throughout the New Testament age and once he puts down all rule and all authority and power, then he once again gives back to the Father. He gives back what he had been given as a steward. So even here we see Christ has been given the stewardship of heaven and earth. Notice what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and following. For he, Christ, must reign till he, Christ, hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he, God the Father, hath put all things under his, Christ's feet. But when he, God, saith all things are put under him, Christ, it is manifested, it is evident that he, God, is not put under Christ, not put under Jesus, since Jesus made clear that the Father was greater than he, which God did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued under him, Christ, then shall the Son also be subject to him, God, the Father, that put all things under him, Christ, so that God, the triune God, may be all in all. So during the New Testament period, you've got a transference of power and authority and dominion and the possession. This is what Paul is talking about. In other words... It seems that Paul is saying that at that time, the Trinity will be united as it was before the Incarnation. And this is what is meant by Paul stating that God is going to be all in all. Therefore, while Christ is reigning and warring on earth now through his body, and that's important, we are the tools of his warfare. The church is his army. Christ is, at this point, given full authority only because, by virtue of his ascension coronation anointing. And this is why the ascension is so important to the doctrine of the gospel and the doctrine of reconstruction. Now there are a number of passages of scripture which anticipates Christ's crowning, which gives us further insight into the components of the coronation ceremony when Christ ascended to the Father in the clouds of glory, which show us how important this ascension coronation event really is. We see this in a number of passages. First, when Solomon was coronated as king. In the first chapter of the first book of the kings, David declares that Solomon will reign after him. He is going to transfer his kingdom, his dominion power, David's dominion power, Solomon's father, to Solomon the son, and he will be then coronated. Notice 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 29. And the king sware and said, As the Lord liveth, that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead, even so will I certainly do this day. So Solomon is now going to be tagged, if you will, as receiving the kingdom, in the same way that Christ is tagged by the Father. Solomon is then, in order to publicly declare and solidify this declaration that Solomon will reign, Solomon is then brought forth to be coronated in the public's eye as the king of Israel. Now this seems to symbolize how David, acting as a type of God, the father, is declaring Solomon to be king, acting as the promised Messiah. Note the actual ceremony as Old Testament anticipates Christ's coronation. 1 Kings 1, verse 32. And King David said, 
call me Zadak the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king. The king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule. Sound familiar? The triumphal entry. Christ riding upon the donkey. Solomon upon my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him their king over Israel and blow ye with the trumpet and say, God save King Solomon. What did they say during the triumphal entry? Hosanna. Save now. Hosanna. When Christ ascended into the clouds, he presented himself before the throne of God, the Father, as the victorious Savior to begin his coronation event. Notice 1 Kings 1, verse 38. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went down and caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet and all the people said, God save King Solomon. And all the people came up after him and the people piped with pipes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth rent with the sound of them. So when Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the week before his crucifixion, declaring himself as the majestic kingly judge, he was pointing back and Israel should have known that. He was pointing back to this historical account of Solomon's inauguration and coronation event which would finally be realized at his ascension. But the people were so blind they missed the anticipation. They missed the type. They failed to understand the Old Testament types and figures. They should have realized was that Jesus was the substance, the historical substance of Solomon that had come to rule for the liberation of his people. It would be Jesus, like Solomon, who would bring in the kingdom and perfect the kingdom on earth in time and in history. Instead, the fickleness of the people, they sided with Caesar. They, they chose Barabbas to be released instead of Christ. And the same people that cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, save now, save now, Hosanna in the highest. One week later, they said, crucify him, crucify him. Another anticipation of what transpired at the coronation is found in Zechariah 3, where Joshua the high priest, another representation of the Lord Jesus, in fact, the word Joshua, the Hebrew word Joshua is the where Jesus in the Greek, he is brought before the Lord. Note how he is first brought before the Lord, arrayed in filthy garments. So Joshua the high priest, even as Jesus the high priest, is arrayed with filthy garments. You would think he's arrayed in glorious garments. No, he's arrayed in filthy garments, clearly symbolizing the sin that he had to bear in our behalf. Notice Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, 
I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by, and the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, and I will engrave the engraving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall he call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Clearly, an anticipation of the coronation event of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another account of the coronation event, an actual account given to Daniel in the dream in our Old Testament reading, was in Daniel chapter 7. And what the apostles were witnessing, and this is important, what the apostles were witnessing when the Lord Jesus ascended and was brought into the clouds, disappearing out of their sight, Daniel is recording what happened on the other side. That's what Daniel sees. He sees the vision of what was on the other side of the clouds that the apostles saw when he, the Lord Christ, disappeared out of his sight. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. Not from the Ancient of Days, but he came to. He stood before the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. So what Daniel is being shown here is the other side of what the apostles saw when they witnessed the Lord as he disappeared out of their sight into the clouds in order to appear before the throne of heaven for his coronation. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud, notice a cloud received him out of their sight. Just as a footnote, it's very interesting. In Solomon's case, there was a public declaration and the people were involved in the coronation event. Well, the clouds in this event a representation of the people of God. We are the great cloud of witnesses. And that is very significant because we share in that coronation event. We are witnesses of that coronation event. Now this was the very event that began the actual inauguration and coronation of the Lord Jesus. All as a result of his total conquest and victory over men and nations. But before his ascension, Christ assures the apostles that they would be empowered once the Holy Ghost came upon them, referring to Pentecost, which would appear to them in a dramatic, earth-shattering event, 10 days later, 50 days after the resurrection. In fact, today is 50 days after the resurrection. Today is the day of Pentecost. But Pentecost could not have happened without the resurrection and without the ascension. So referring to Pentecost, he tells them in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall then be witnesses unto me everywhere, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Now that phrase, uttermost parts of the earth, points us back to Psalm chapter 2 also, where he gets as his inheritance, the Lord Christ gets as his inheritance, 
the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. Now, the empowerment of the church would not take place until Christ ascended, coronated, given the throne of his majesty, and then sends the Pentecost to empower his people. And this is why Jesus was careful to tell Mary when she sees the resurrected Christ that she was not to constrain him to stay on earth because he had to ascend to his Father. And it would be very strange in chapter 20, verse 17 of John, if if Jesus would say, touch me not. And he says, touch me not. What he means is, do not cling to me. That's the Greek. Do not hold me here. I can't stay here. I know you want me to stay here, but I cannot stay here. There's a greater purpose in 40 days when I will ascend and then bring the Spirit. So he says, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, now notice what he's saying. He's saying, go to them and tell them this, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Alluding to the fact that at that moment, he would receive the coronation. He would receive all that he had accomplished as his reward, glory and a kingdom and dominion. And it was always the intent of the Lord Jesus Christ to come into the world to suffer, to resurrect, so as to ascend in order to evangelize the world through his conquering church, the army of the living God, as a result of their empowerment at Pentecost. A royal coronation proceeding had to take place, in other words, before any empowerment was given to his people. And that would happen ten days later on the 50th day after Christ's resurrection at Pentecost. Furthermore, this coronation documented the fact that Christ had been given the total possession of the global order, which was originally his, but was lost in Adam. We do not own the earth. Mankind does not own the earth. We are a steward. But Christ is the possessor. He is the man. He is the husbandman. And we are his servants. And the implication is this. Christ now as king and legitimate owner of the world takes it back from Adam. He's taking it back from Adam. As we declare the gospel, as we take it back from the Adamic fall, Christ is taking it back from Adam. And he is dispossessing Adam's generation. The illegitimate rebels, as detailed in Psalm 37 and 1 Corinthians 15. So you see, we are in the, the ministry of taking back what Adam lost. We are in the ministry of dispossessing the wicked. The institutions that the wicked have built, we are to take them back and we are to rebuild them according to God's prototype. Now the apostle knew how important this ascension was because they understood that he would now make his enemies his footstool. And this is why Paul writes to the Ephesians. Notice how the apostle sets forth the event by applying the prophecy of Psalm 68 to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That gift is the gift of salvation and the gift of empowerment. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also first had to descend into the lower parts of the earth 
He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens so that he might fill all things. Or, put it another way, that he might conquer all things, that he might redeem all things, that he might reconstruct all things. Now consider some of the particulars of the ascension itself. Note first the place where he ascended from. He ascended from the world and from among his brethren. In other words, he was called out from the people to be a king unto the people and over the affairs of men and nations. He was in the world, but never was he of the world. That was to be the same testimony of the elect. They were to be in the world, but not of the world. They could not be worldly minded. They had to be heavenly minded. But they couldn't be so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. They had to be earthly good. And the only way they could be earthly good was because they were heavenly minded. In his priestly prayer, Jesus asks the Father to keep his beloved sheep in the world so as to change the world, not hide out in the church, not have an academic head-scratching with debates and apologetics, but that he would change the world. And that's on you, mother and father. That's on you, young people. You are called to change the world according to the scriptures. And hopefully mother and father have led an example which is kingdom worthy. Notice what Jesus says. I have given them thy word. This is John seventeen fourteen and following. I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. And what does that even mean? What does that even mean? Well, we don't do stupid things. We don't do worldly things. We don't do worldly things or carnal things. We do things which are lawful. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But note the exact place from where Jesus ascends. He ascends from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is so significant in Scripture. It is such a significant place in the life of the Lord, as well as in the Old Testament, because it was at the foot of the mount where Jesus prayed in the Garden Gethsemane and where he often retired to pray. He also went by way of that mount in his missionary travels, probably to reflect, but even perhaps reflect upon his ascension and his coronation. And he was very careful to look beyond the suffering. You see, in order to, to really do what he did, you think about what he had to bear. And you might fluff this off and say, well, but he was God. Yeah, but he was man. How did he go and keep going. How did he keep on going? Well, he looked beyond the suffering. He looked beyond the worldliness. He looked beyond the affliction. He was very careful to focus and look beyond the suffering and sacrifice to the end which he came, and that end was glory. Concerning the future focus of the Lord, the Hebrew writer observes in Hebrews 12 too, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, he endured the suffering, despising the suffering, despising the persecution, despising the, the, the mortification that he had to do daily, 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 resisting the temptation that was ever present with him. He despised it and he looked beyond it and he, now he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the Mount of Olives is also where Jesus sets forth the blessed Beatitudes. And this is significant since when he ascended, he did so with a blessing upon his lips. And so he ascends with a blessing upon his lips, shedding forth and and a 
abundance of gifts, conferring offices of ambassadorship, of discipleship, of apostleship, of priestlyship, unto all of his people. And that is what is meant by leading captivity captive and bestowing gifts unto men. Paul draws this from Psalm 68, leading captivity captive, giving gifts unto men. Now consider where he ascended. He ascended to the throne of God. He ascended into heaven itself, the throne room of God, where the Ancient of Days did sit. More particularly, he ascended to the right hand of God. So as to be enthroned in the original primeval majesty that he once had before the Incarnation, and at the right hand of God, he is now going to rule with the scepter of righteousness. So make no mistake about it. Now that Christ has ascended, he rules over heaven and earth. And the churches better get on board with that and stop giving credence to the devil, to the state, to this institution, to that institution, and the other institution that is not God-centered. So he's standing at the right hand of majesty. He ascended to the place of power and authority, the throne room of God, to be seated upon the throne. And it is from that place of power and authority that he conquers through his body the church. Christ is not failing because he has not failed. So now we ask, when did he ascend? Well, we know it wasn't immediate. It was not immediately after the passion of his death, nor after the victory of his resurrection, but rather after a full 40 days of public pronouncement that he was the ruler over death and thus the entire created order. It was a time of examination. The 40-day pronouncement was also a reminder to the people that it was now time to take dominion. And it was a 40-day declaration that a new king had come to dethrone and disinherit the old king, Adam the rebellious man. The kingdom had come. The action now was needed. The work of reaping was at hand for the harvest was very ripe and it was the declaration of a new beginning. All things now were made new. The new man, the new wine, the new heaven, the new earth had come in power, in authority. And it would one day be consummated at the end of the world. Eden would even now be reclaimed. Adam would be dispossessed. Eden would be reclaimed and recultivated. A new heavenly commission was afoot, bringing about a newly formed social order where righteousness would dwell, provided the church would understand its commission and be empowered and be emboldened. The church today is making excuses for being Christians. We can never make an excuse to be God's people. For when we do, we dishonor the honor of Christ. Also consider how he ascended into heaven publicly. He ascended as a public person, as the forerunner of his people, Christ the King, they his princes. He also ascended triumphantly. This was his heavenly procession up to the clouds of heaven, into the throne room of God to be crowned forever as the undisputed eternal King. And the psalmist anticipated that. David anticipated this in Psalm 47. Notice what he says. God has gone up with a shout, the shout of victory, with the sound of a trumpet, and therefore sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises unto our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Notice, He possesses the earth. 
Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the nations. God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abram. For the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. This is all about the ascension. The trumpet that blows is the message of victory, symbolizing the resurrection of the dead as they raise up to conquer triumphantly. Notice Zechariah 9.14 And the Lord shall be seen over them and His arrow shall go forth as the lightning and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet. Notice Lord God here. Adonai Yahweh shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south victoriously. No compromise, no excuses, no apologies. Conquering. The question now is what are the particulars of this dominion transition from a world of wickedness where the world lieth in wickedness to a time where righteousness will triumph and justice will prevail. Another question we must ask is, how is the church, how do we factor into this global metamorphosis? Now, I believe God has given us insight throughout the scriptures, but mostly in this one particular scripture passage in the prophet Isaiah. And the reason I believe this is because this is the very same passage that the Lord Jesus initially referred to when he publicly began his ministry, when he publicly spoke in the synagogue. In Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and following, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Pointing to himself that today this scripture of Isaiah 61 is now being fulfilled. So now we ask a few questions concerning the timing of Isaiah 61. When does it commence? When when was Isaiah pointing to? What time frame? What period? We also might ask, when was it fulfilled? What are its components? Who are the players in this prophecy? Because there's always players in the prophecy other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's ask, when does it begin? From the testimony of the Savior... The timing of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61 takes place at the beginning of Christ's ministry. In principle, Isaiah 61 begins at the incarnation, but is effectuated at the start of his public ministry. It comes in power at Pentecost as a result of the crucifixion, atonement, resurrection, and then the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ being fulfilled at Pentecost. It's fulfilled in principle at Christ's crucifixion and certified by His resurrection, but in actuality, the culmination takes place when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's when the culmination will actually take place. 
It is at a time when all nations will call him blessed, the king of nations. But what are the components of Isaiah 61? Who are the players in this prophecy? And what are the ramifications of their work? Well, consider the systemic ramifications of Christ's coronation according to Isaiah. By the preaching of the good tidings of the gospel, notice the first thing he says, the brokenhearted will be bound up. The captives of sin, death, and the grave will be set at liberty, and the prison houses of the domination of the Adamic nature will be burst wide open. No more imprisoned by Adam's old nature. Are we dealing with it? Absolutely. Are we contending with it? Absolutely. Does it get ascendancy over us every once in a while? Yes. But we are not under its dominion. Sin shall not reign over us. So that was the initial blessing. All of this takes place as a result of Christ's work as lawgiver, judge, king, and savior. It is the New Testament age that is identified as the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of God upon all the wicked. Notice further how Isaiah lays out why Christ has come. Too often we compartmentalize the reason why Christ has come. He came to save sinners. Right, yes, fine. That's not it all. If it is going to be a systemic, total and comprehensive glory and, and reign, he has to do more than just save sinners from their sin. Notice, Christ has come to comfort all that mourn. Right. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Of course, this is what the Lord has purposed to do. But, but there are others who play a significant role in this mission. The church, in order for the church to function, they have to no longer be mourning. They have to have beauty for ashes. They have to be anointed with the joy instead of mourning. They have to have garments of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. They have to be called the trees of righteousness. They have to be the planting of the Lord so that He might be glorified. That's what they have to be in order for them to do the work of God. The church are very intricately positioned to do the work that Christ has come to accomplish. And here is what they are commanded to accomplish. Isaiah 61, verse 4. And they shall build the old wastes. That's what happened when Adam sinned. And mankind has been destroying the world since. Make no mistake about it, sin is utterly destructive. If I could say anything to you that will stick in your mind for the rest of the week, I know there's a lot here to digest, but let me just say this, and if you're taking notes, write this down. Remember this, and never forget this. Fear, sin. Fear, sin, and the consequences that it brings, because the consequences are ravaging. Fear, sin. Notice, they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations 
and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Note how God adds others to assist in this work. He calls them strangers who also seem to have received a regeneration in verse 5. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. He then calls God's people priests and ministers who by their obedience and by their faith receive a double portion of God's blessings. Notice verse 6 and 7. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall receive double honor, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion, therefore in their land they shall possess the double. And this is what Christ was saying, blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. The double blessing, everlasting joy, he says, shall be unto them. Notice how God promises to direct the faithful in all their work of kingdom advancement. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for a burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth. Now one might say, how in the world am I, a simpleton, going to bring to pass this incredible commission of restoring the old waste places, reconstructing the institutions that that the Adamic nature of man have destroyed? How in the world am I going to do this? I can't do this. You can't do this. None of us can do this. But notice what he says. I will direct their work in truth. We don't do it alone. Once we're sanctified, once we're redeemed, he directs us in truth and he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Now verse 9 sets the stage for an obvious and universal acknowledgement of God's people as the victorious soldiers of the Lord. Notice the language highlighting the seed. Notice verse 9, and their seed. Pointing back to Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offering among the people. And all that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. We are the seed of the Lord. As Christ is the seed, we are the seed. And the reference to the seed points directly back to the original promise of Genesis 3, that God will crush the head of all serpents, all scorpions, all the evil ones. The children of God, the seeds of righteousness, will be known as, as people of God, as priests of God, as the beloved of God among the nations, those who have been given, along with the Christ, dominion and power and glory in the kingdom. But now you ask, well, how are the nations going to know this? Well, not by closing the church. We met a man while we were traveling who was Greek Orthodox. He had a, a restaurant, and we sat there to eat, and he, we were sharing church stories, and he said that he doesn't even have his staff in a restaurant wear masks said, we don't allow masks in this place. And you would think my Orthodox Greek church would be, would be bold. But they not only closed, they boarded it up. He said, so I went to a charismatic church. Not my liking, too much music, too much loudness, but at least they were open. So how will the nations know that we are the Lord? Well, of course, Jesus says, they will know you by your love one to another, by your fruit. What is that fruit? Faith, obedience, moral integrity. We will be known by the power 
that God has given us to do what is right, to eschew evil, to overcome evil with good. And of course, again, once again, by our love one for another and our passion for the things of God. How do you show passion for the things of God? You obey the things of God. You serve God's people. You minister. You give a word which is is needful as a ministry to people who are mourning. You comfort them. And this is what the saints are supposed to be working toward daily. A total reconstruction of life, beginning with the self. And let me say it again, beginning with yourself. You know, sometimes we want to, we want to go to so many extremes without doing the A, B, and C's of life. We want to go and we want to do great things for God when we ourselves are totally out of order. So first, we deal with ourselves, then with our family then the church, then the community, then the world. Reconstruction begins with the individual. Then in the home before it extends further into the further reaches of the nations. And this can only happen if the people of God are given the necessary tools of regeneration and the sanctifying spirit. You cannot do this by your own strength. You must be born again. And if that grace is given then your power will bring these things to the forefront and these things will be realized in time and in history. All of these blessings that God has promised us will bring us to fulfill the work that God has commissioned for us. And then we will be able to establish as a fact in the world before men and nations the crown rights of King Jesus which were given to him in his coronation. But here's the rub. Daniel chapter 7, after Christ receives his coronation, after he receives dominion and power and glory, in verse 27 of that same chapter, chapter 7 of Daniel, we read this, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High God, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. The kingdom has been given to us, and we have failed to take possession because of fear. Fear of men. Fear to declare the crown rights of King Jesus in the public square. This is our calling. This is our gospel commission. This is our life's purpose. Make no mistake about it. If you think your life's purpose is this, that, or the other thing, and it's not Christ's purpose, then you don't have a purpose. At least not an eternal purpose. May God fulfill in us our calling so that we may be unto him a glory and a praise and let it then be said of the Father when our time on this earth is completed well done thou good and faithful servant enter thou into the joy of the Lord. May this be our our testimony. May this be our end. Amen.